listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. As we begin to put in our hours on our cushion, as we begin to cultivate a stillness practice, one of the things that we recognize is that our individual or personal uh, awareness becomes informed by something much more absolute, much more universal. So as we sit, consciousness becomes informed by, you could say, awareness. But the awareness of awareness is consciousness. Consciousness, in other words, is kind of slightly contracted. It's slightly personal in the way I'm using the word. Okay? Awareness itself is aware of everything equally. So we begin to go from this this place of contraction, this place of personal, this place of self, we begin to literally expand, become informed by, consciously informed by awareness. That consciousness is that bridge. It's the tool that allows us to become informed by that which is totally timeless, totally beyond mind. So when this happen, happens, lots of things can come up for individuals. Once they begin to get a sense of the universal awareness, they get a sense of the absolute, it comes crashing through in ways that can be totally disorienting. You can have these really, really remarkable experiences, whether we're meditating or not, where it's like, whoa, and then immediately there's the recognition that that space isn't safe for ego. It is not safe for everything that, as I've said, is personal, everything that is contracted, everything that is a self-orientation and recognizes an other orientation or subjective and objective. That thing in us that perceives in here, out there, suddenly gets taken for a ride. It's shown this swirl of the infinite. It starts to recognize that we're all related, whether or not we have blood binding us, creed binding us, ethnicity, faith, it recognizes that everything is totally connected, that everything is totally temporary, and that everything is infinite at its core. And since ego, or the separate self-sense, is the opposite of that, it likes things to be permanent, it likes things to be independent, 
It even creates documents and dates where independence can be celebrated collectively. And it also recognizes its relationship with God as opposed to, or the infinite, as opposed to a direct realization of the infinite. Everything I just described right there is that's, that is the, that's kind of the, I hate to use the word, but that's the problem. That's the obstacle. That's the impediment. That's the curtain that shields us from the radiant clear light of awakening. Want me to say it again? Yeah, okay. The thing that, the thing that keeps us from fully and directly realizing the radiant clear light of emptiness or of spirit is everything in us that wants something to be permanent. It's everything in us that wants stuff to be independent. It perceives itself and everything else as independent. So permanence, independence, and instead of a direct realization with spirit or the infinite or God or being or whatever you want to call it, it recognizes its separation from being God, emptiness, spirit, infinite. That's what gets in our way. And one of the ways it fuels its strength, it fuels rather, I should say, it's uh, the thickness of itself. It adds more bricks in the wall. It sews another layer onto the curtain is by going for safety, by going for what's safe and what is known in all cases, by going for what's safe or what is known or what can be managed, what can be controlled. And this is a tricky, tricky business because if we continually go for safety, we go for what's keeping us from awakening. If we continually go for the familiar, we then can't have the blessing and grace of the unfamiliar, which has an amazing opportunity to open us. When we do allow for that opening to occur, oftentimes we see a couple things happen. And one of the first things we see happen is that uh, stuff comes up that's negative. Makes us cranky. We've talked about that. Negativity kind of starts coming up. We start becoming, in many respects, even with the sitting practice, we become more judgmental. We become uh, uh, raw. And the way we defend against this rawness that we feel is to fight back. The wits can become more acerbic, okay? The tempers can become shorter. The fuses just don't burn quite so long in many respects. And then we get these great comments, comments from those that we love the most. You know, good, you know, here's some, some meditation practice you have. You are a pain in my neck right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is very, very common. But it's also ego's last gasp. It's actually a very good sign in some respects. And it doesn't happen with all people this way, but I've seen it unfold in people this way. They become more 
they become, they become like, um, hmm. I want to use the term monsters. They become like monsters. And not monsters as in necessarily murderous, but just, just like Oscar the Grouch. How's that? Become much more like Oscar the Grouch. It's ego's last stand. Ego, eh, come back here, come back here, come back here. Damn it. Pulling us down as opposed to letting us ascend. Meditation practice, as much as it can bring that out, the quality, the Oscar the Grouch quality, it can also have something that comes down and smashes through our habitual experience and awakens us to what's real. We have these profound experiences that give us kind of an aha or a oh yeah or a welcome home or a what the hell was that? But there's this unmistakable sense that it's divine and that it's able to carry with it something that is so far beyond our ability to articulate. It's so far beyond our ability to hold on to it or to categorize it that we just kind of don't know what to do. It's not safe. And in order to make that not knowing what to do safe, what do we tend to do? Categorize it. Quantify it. Qualify it. Try to repeat it. And this defiles this gift of grace. So when these experiences happen, the practice is really to just allow it and let it pass and know that you have been invited, so to speak, that we're on this path to see past all impediments, to see past and through this veil, anything that veils our awakening. And just because ego is resisting, the negative stuff comes up, doesn't mean that the positive stuff can't rain down on us. We just have to be available. And this is where the practice comes in. We become available to all the negativity that is arising. We just notice it. And in that noticing the negativity that is arising, we make space for grace to strike down on us. For awakening to sop through our consciousness and enfold us in a broad awareness. And we have a direct realization with spirit in that sense, in that case. So our work is to recognize exactly what keeps us safe. What do we do in our life that keeps us safe? And I'm not talking about, I mean, the logical extreme opposite of this would be, oh, okay, all I got to do is live dangerously. 
and I'm not meaning that in the contracted sense of living dangerously. Don't suddenly go outside, drain the oil from your car, and drive around in second gear for a while. That, that's, that's just idiocy. Idiocy is not necessarily living dangerously. I'm talking about living dangerously in a big way. And a big life of danger is a life that incorporates fearlessness to go beyond what is known, to, be, to go beyond what is habitual, to go beyond what says me, 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 me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. What goes beyond that? That's big danger because that's precisely the place where ego doesn't have traction. And if you think about it, it's, it's interesting. Threats are exactly what gives ego reason to live. Threats are what give ego reason to be the center point of our consciousness, the center of gravity for our entire being. And we recognize threats as simply coming from either memories that we don't want to replicate or future outcomes that we want to avoid. That's it. And so this carries us back into the kind of the primary teaching of this work, which is if you are really ensconced in the present moment, if you're really being aware witnessing everything that is happening, witnessing a past memory that comes up, pain that is tweaked by this template of some memory or some story that you wrote when you were a little boy or girl. And we can witness these potential futures that we're actually co-authoring continually with experience. Ego is constantly writing these things down and saying, aha, see, there's a threat. The minute we identify with those things is the minute we are never able to live in the now. We can't live in the present moment. And if we can't live in the present moment, there isn't space for the Dharma rain to soak through. So as we identify with thoughts, we, we endeavor to stabilize, I sometimes say, we stabilize the chaos of being when we're thinking. The way for us to stabilize the chaos of being is by thinking about it. Feelings, the root of greed comes from or is born from feelings. We want to feel good. And we want to avoid pain. The root of greed comes in that relationship we have with our feelings. So if we have a different relationship to our thoughts, as opposed to being whipped around by future and past, we're no longer whipped around by our thoughts. As long as we can witness our feelings we no longer are whipped around by the greed 
that is automatically associated with them. We have begun to put ourselves in a space of infinite availability to spirit. Infinite availability to all that is open and uncontracted and totally relaxed. We're no longer bound by fear. We're no longer bound by that negativity that comes up. We have a different relationship to it. And the different relationship to it is what allows that stuff to rain down on us. And we're suddenly available to it. It's been pouring all the time. But we get out from under that roof of perceived safety. And we accept it with a radical awareness, a radical honesty and integrity. And that's the path. And it's available to everyone. Everyone. I'm wondering how one practices not trying to be safe all the time. Do you see a situation that you know you're going to be uncomfortable in and like go for it? Sure, maybe, maybe not. It, it's a gentle exercise, I feel, that isn't about pushing past limits that are small. Should I drive 75 miles an hour today? That's a small limit. Okay. Next to the school, that's a big limit. I'm kidding. Okay, but you, you get the idea. Should I should I drive 75 miles? That's that's not that's not a big one. The big one is where is it that I feel resistance? Where is it that the I feels resistance? And we explore that. And in that exploration, we begin studying and uncovering. We study the self and then begin to uncover the boundaries that form its falseness. And as we begin to look at that, we see that there's so much more. So while I can't give you an example about what would be great for you personally, Letting this talk in, not just here in your brain, but like your whole body, just letting it into your whole body. What type of risks, appropriate risks, will equal appropriate responses to this very life? And then that allows this to become this world that you're in, this life that you are inhabiting to become quite artful. So being aware, just observing mm -hmm. and saying, ah, that's exactly. what it is. Ah, there's resistance. Mm -hmm. Huh. Let's look at that. And the deeper your sitting practice gets, actually the more you realize the resistance, oftentimes the more cranky you become because you realize there's so much damn resistance everywhere. Now, this doesn't mean in the real world that 
Sometimes resistance isn't an appropriate response. Sometimes resistance is an appropriate response. As long as it is conscious. If it's unconscious resistance, it's invariably an inappropriate response. It's actually a birth to some form of war. Thank you. Thank you. I'm finding this phenomenon. I notice it probably, I notice it everywhere, but I notice it in my job because I'm a program specialist and I oftentimes have to, I don't know, step up to the plate and do some things that um, are uncomfortable. And what's happening, I think, I hope, I used to kind of just have to build up a head of steam and mm. kind of go for it because I was a little bit nervous and scared and <sighs> couldn't turn my neck by the end of the meeting and things like that. You right. know, I was like, so tense. Now it seems to be happening, not all the time, but sometimes is I just have this sense of what I think ought to happen and it's sort of just popping out of me. You know, or it's not. Sometimes I'm deciding I just ought to maybe shut up. But I don't know what my point is, except that aside from being cranky all the time, there is some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. There is some of this stuff happening. And uh, it, it's sometimes what I, I think what you were saying about feeling safe. It feels like sometimes I'm pushing past where I feel safe to try to say something that I think needs to be said or and it's always perplexing to me though it's like who needs to say this do I need to say this or that's a big boundary yeah okay that's a big boundary let, let me explain this one of the most profound things there are two things actually I'd love to respond to what you're saying in two okay. ways the first is one of the biggest um, points of availability to each of us as far as big boundaries are concerned is the art of listening. It's easy to talk. Mm -hmm. It's much more difficult and much more of an expansive experience to really hear another person with your eyes. To really see another person with your ears. The paradox is intended there. Can you actually really listen? I have a friend who's a financial planner on the East Coast, and he's an incredibly successful guy. And he's also a, an incredible practitioner. And um, his point is he walks into these multi-million dollar clients, and he says he rarely, if ever, says a word for the first half hour. And he says, invariably, the person begins to bust out crying, usually after about minute four or five, okay? And they stop crying at around minute 25. And then by minute 30, they're shaking his hand, I am so glad you came, when all he did was really see them, really hear them. And then, of course, he comes up with some brilliant plan. I don't know how he does it, but, you know, it's like a turnaround specialist for rock stars gone bad, you know? <laughs> and he helps 
make it work by just hearing. That's the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing I wanted to say was your metaphor, stepping up to the plate, is such a great way to describe this work. Because stepping up to the plate oftentimes takes a, it takes a little steam to get us to that plate, especially when it's bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded, down by three. If that's not pressure, I don't know what is. Okay? So the steam to get you there. But then, once you're in the batter's box, if you haven't studied what the pitcher's been throwing for the last bit of time, and you can't totally let go and let God, so to speak, in that swing so that your, your, your being takes over rather than your brain, you're toast. Game over. You must be in the zone. And the zone is a place of total spaciousness and total relaxation, so much so that your relationship to time shifts enough to be able to see the ball get released in slow motion that you know exactly where you're going to make contact with it and whether you're going to pull or go the other way, depending on what the outfield's doing. And that happens rather naturally with the stillness practice. Another thing about baseball, do you know how many stitches there are on a baseball? A hundred and eight. Do you know how many impediments there are to enlightenment? A hundred and eight? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Deep. <laughs> Go Giants. Yeah, right. <laughs> Opening day, 2006. <laughs> <laughs>